Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University, and I'm with a very interesting person called Wendy Lassica, who is a, originally trained as a dancer, then went on to choreography, and now she's an urban planner. It's such an interesting mixture, and most people would think I was making this all up, but here's Wendy. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Wendy. Oh, it's a pleasure, Stephen, to be here. Thank you. Most planners, I'm a town planner, I have to confess, and most of the planners I encountered in my career had no idea of dance or choreography, they perhaps a little bit of an idea of theatre. Tell me about your dance career to start with. Well, I um, actually started studying uh, law and economics at Monash straight out of school and very quickly realised that was not going to be my career path. Um, I'd been dancing already for a long time. Um, I come from um, a line of dancers. My mother was a very influential uh, modern dancer in Melbourne. Margaret. Margaret, um, in the 50s, 60s and 70s and um, into the 80s as well. And so dancing was kind of in my blood, I have to say, although there was a lot of um, dissuasion from ever considering it as a career, Mm. on the home front at least. Did you work with the company? Uh, I trained, um, initially, um, I went to the Laban Centre in London and then um, went off to the University of Hawaii to uh, finish my undergraduate degree in dance and anthropology um, and moved to New York in the early 80s uh, at a time when um, there was a huge amount of activity in dance um, and lots of people were going there because there were um, opportunities to perform, to produce, to create your own work, to uh, join other companies. Uh, it was just a very exciting time to be there. Tricia Brown would have been around at the time, is that right? Oh, absolutely, yes. So there were a number of companies that were really... Um, uh, taking dance in completely new directions, and Trisha Brown was certainly one of those companies. Amazing. So, came back to Melbourne? Um, oh, many years later. Uh, mm. So, I was in New York for about six years, um, performing initially, choreographing, producing my own work there. And then I began to produce other people's work and um, in the end set up an organisation in New York that called The Field that supports the... Uh, Well, at the time, it supported the work of young and emerging choreographers and dancers uh, who were just kind of getting their foothold in New York. Mm -hmm. Now, this organisation's still going 30 years later, uh, now works across all art forms. And you're still involved? I'm not involved with it anymore, no. But I do have connections there still, and I hear about what they're doing and the directions that they're taking their, their work. So why did you come back? Um... I think it was just, it was a couple of things. Um, with New York, I felt like I was at that point where I either had to commit to staying there forever or it was time to go. I think a lot of people get to that point in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also left Australia when I was quite young and I felt like I'd never really had an adult relationship with my parents mm-hmm. and I wanted to reconnect with them um, in a different way. So it was a combination of those two things. So when you had headed back to Melbourne, what year were we looking at? Uh, 1987. Wow. Yeah. And that was the recession that we didn't have... That was the start of the recession. Uh, It was, yes, I think... 91, no, it was probably getting into it. 
Well, I think the stock market crash of 87, I was literally on a plane flying between New York and Melbourne. <laughs> so we went from one extreme to another. And and what were your intentions, apart from reconnecting with your parents again? What were you trying to... Well, I really saw, uh, saw it as an opportunity for um, a change in direction. Um, I've been quite um, interested in... Um, uh, interested in in knowing when when is the best time to get out of things um, personally, mm-hmm. and when to you know generate new new directions or new ideas. Um, I very quickly realised when I got back to Melbourne that um, dancing for me was no longer something I wanted to pursue with the same enthusiasm as mm-hmm. before. Um, it was very clear in New York that um, my niche was producing. Um, and so that's when I came back here, that's, that's really, uh, the direction that I continued with, uh, initially producing dance, but then I moved into producing music. Um, I worked with Astra Choir and the Composing Women's Festival. And then, um, I've in the last 15 years or so, almost exclusively producing theatre and mostly with Brian Lipson. Wow. Yeah. And then you've just taken this huge change, direction change, yeah. urban planning. Yes. At Melbourne University, you, yeah. you studied, you, you got a, was it a master's? Or a master's a, in urban planning. Yeah. Why? Um, it was actually after um, a trip back to New York um, in uh, 2011, where I suddenly saw the incredible changes that had occurred in the city. I mean, I've always loved cities and I've always loved um, understanding how how they work, the interconnections between them, the relationships between, you know, the buildings, the people, the landscape, um, and how how some cities are very, um, very successful and others are not. And, and why do you think New York's successful? I mean, they've got the High Line and they've got some great, great parks and... Um, Part of it, I think, is um, is the uh, the sort of human scale of New York, and um, that's what I see as changing. And that's what I saw being there in 2011, having lived there in the 1980s. That human scale has shifted, certainly out of Manhattan, mm. and that's ha- that has had and will continue to have quite dramatic effects on the quality of livability in New York. Um, so all of a sudden, I realised. I actually want to know a lot more about this. And that was the impetus to go did and you, study urban planning. Uh, when did you see a shortfall in Melbourne that we could be better or we could be more like New York or that you just saw that Melbourne was going to slowly be coming more humanised? Well, I think that there have been big shifts in, in Melbourne in the 30 years that I've been back. Um, and... Uh, you know, I remember coming back and not being able to get breakfast anywhere. You know, they, people just didn't go out for breakfast. There's, a, there's been a very big shift in the way people um, um, socialise. People socialise out more in public spaces, in public place, in public places, a lot more than they used to. I think that um, uh, I believe that the changes in the smoking laws, which kind of shifted people out onto the um, footpaths and yeah. the terraces and now the roof gardens has had a huge impact in the way people perceive streets as public places mm-hmm. in a positive way, I think. Um, it means that the city's 
um, that that sort of streetscape is much more activated than it ever was. Uh, and and Wendy, you work with a number of architects now, in you know, say it's an apartment building in the city, creating mm. the communal, looking at the communal areas. And I've noticed, a, you know, a lot of architects and a lot of developers just go through their checklist and they go, you know, theatre-ish with check, you know, uh, prestigious lobby that's really sumptuous, check, yep. uh, uh, roof terrace, check. It's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? I think it is. And I think, you know, that, that, um, that, uh, kind of, um, whole way of understanding a city where, um, it's about the, it's about the movement. And I think that that's where it kind comes of, to dance. that's where it comes to dance. I, I perceive things in terms of movement. So I see the flows between the buildings, how the buildings affect how people connect with them, the landscape that the city sits in. And I think that that can be taken on a much smaller scale in terms of, you know, singular buildings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding how that, how those relationships, um, um, how they can, how they work, how they can be enhanced. Um, how do you start the process when you say we're giving an example of a new high-rise uh, residential development that's mm. coming into the city or on the in the inner city? Uh, obviously, there's a brief. The architect gets a brief. How do you? Where do you kind of slot in in terms of trying to create a more engaging well, environment? Um, I'm always interested in context. So. The context of the site itself, the context of the functions, the historic functions of the site, um, previous perhaps even to the building that's either there or had been there in the past. So um, trying to connect, um, you know, history with the present um, to develop some sort of future mm-hmm. um, occurs in, in the in that relationship again between the buildings and the function and the people and the landscape. Wendy, if, for instance, the architect comes up with a scheme and you can see it's really not poetic in terms of movement and con- connectivity, yeah. do you kind of have a word in there and say, look, it's not working, it's not going to work? Or do you, are there strict parameters and you kind of try and not cross that line? Um, I feel like... Uh, that actually hasn't happened to me yet. So. <laughs> um, but I think that um, it's about the language in a way. I feel like the design language is not for me to necessarily um, critique, but I can um, potentially influence in terms of talking about the use and the function and the mm-hmm. way it's used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that's that's where I can contribute. Do you think there's too you know, the developers and architects are getting a little bit narrow in terms of what they're providing in some of these inner-city high-rise towers? Because, I mean, some of them just look identical to me. I can't see a point of difference. Yeah. um, It's a difficult question. I think that, um, you know, I think that a lot of designers are under enormous pressure by the developers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that uh, that... It's potentially time to sort of take a step back and really consider how one site fits within the whole context, mm-hmm. the bigger context, I think. The other thing that's very interesting, Wendy, and you mentioned this the other day when I caught up with you, was planning can also create, um, have other uh, effects on a city. For instance, you were talking about a book fair, a book fair that's become... Uh, 
really a, a draw card for many, many people to a local uh, rural town. That's right. And that's really yeah. changed the feel of that whole town. It has. Tell me about it. I think it's a really interesting project. Um, well, Clunes Book Town is um, a festival that started um, in around, uh, I think the first one was in um, 2007. And uh, it was a group of um, local people who um, were interested in um, creating something to do with books and writing um, in this particular town, which is uh, about half an hour northwest of Ballarat. And uh, Clunes was one of the first gold rush towns in Victoria. It was enormously wealthy during the gold rush and consequently has this fabulous historic architecture in the main street. Um, the people in the town recognised that they've got something quite special there and had organised to um, uh, underground all the services. So when you walk down the main street, it looks like it would have looked oh, in, in the you know, mid to late 18, 1800s. Uh, and so it's used a lot in um, historic film and drama. It was in Ned Kelly, I think, and um, uh, Something in the Air, a number of other a number of other shows. But what this town um, did, and really they tried it out as an experiment, was looked at the model from Hay on Wye in the UK of book towns where a number of um, second-hand booksellers come together over a weekend and uh, at the same time there's a program of authors' talks and things like that. And it's all held in the main street and in some of the... Um, the little shops. Little shops and the ex-banks and all sorts of wonderful spaces. Uh, it was enormously successful straight off. So they, I think they expected in the first year about 1,500 people to come, and they got 6,000. Wow. And in a town that has a permanent population of about 1,200, that was pretty extraordinary. Where did they all stay? They struggled. Um, they struggled. Um, in that first year, but you know there are places you can do it as a day trip. People can stay in Ballarat, they can stay in surrounding towns, um, and it's just grown and grown. And now uh, it attracts between fifteen and twenty thousand people over the weekend. It's amazing, and it's um, impacted the town incredibly economically. So uh, there are now all sorts of other businesses that um, service. Um, you know, the festival weekend, but also there are a number of people who come outside of that festival weekend now to visit because Clunes is now on people's radar as um, an interesting place to go if you're doing that sort of gold rush tour. So as an urban planner, what's your role in all of this? Um, I worked with um, Clunes Booktown on developing their new strategic plan for the next seven years. And I was interested in them as an organisation, not just from the cultural perspective, where I've worked with other cultural organisations for a long time, but also because an organisation of this size in Melbourne would never have had that sort of influence in their community, whereas Clunes Booktown has had a huge amount of influence um, in the town. It's assisted to um, uh, kind of reshape the way um, the town operates in the whole area um, and has provided um, a kind of window to a new future for some um, some other 
um, rural towns who are also looking to um, sort of revision their futures. And Wendy, with books and that cultural, um, you know, magnet, yeah. then other users will start forming in that town, a bit like places like Kyneton. That's right. And so you get this lovely... Flow on. Flow on. That's exactly and right. And it's the right yeah. type of people and the right users rather than getting, you know, fast take away food and all crap and all the rest, it's not that scene. It becomes a really interesting mix. That's right, yeah. So it becomes, um, yes, it it becomes a very very interesting um, connector for other other towns as well, Um, you know, which are already Mm. doing similar things. So Dalesford is not far away and Mm. Castlemaine and, but, you know, each of them have their own identity and way of having, you know, Mm. Um, rejuvenated their town. This is a very big question, Wendy. If you don't want to answer it, you don't have to, or you can answer it in parts. But um, as an urban planner Mm. with a very different approach to, I would say, most planners I've come across, where do you see the direction of Melbourne? Where do you see it? I know you... Where do you see... What are some of the issues that we're facing as we go forward in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I think the primary issue is around density. Um, and I think density um, density seems to have a very bad reputation in Melbourne. Um, it's not as scary as people think. Uh, Why do you think it's been has a bad reputation? Um, Melbourne was developed with the idea that there was endless space there at our disposal to to sort of take over and live on as yeah. we needed, and that's in this day and age that's really. Um, quite an unrealistic idea. Uh, you know, we can't keep pushing out the boundary of the city. Um, it's not possible to keep investing in the services services and infrastructure that the inner and um, middle ring suburbs have. It's much uh, more efficient and I think effective to actually um, densify the areas that do operate well. Without, and you, I think all of that is possible without losing... Um, you know, the things that people love about Melbourne. How do you do it in a way that doesn't um, cause such havoc? I mean, at the moment, every main thoroughfare, every main uh, transport node, every main th- you know street is becoming um, really earmarked for high-rise development. Well, I th- for a start, I don't know that um, high-rise is the only answer. Um, you can often get um, a similar um, level of density, and by that I mean um, into sort of density of population um, in you know um, six or seven story buildings mm. um, that are well designed and will provide um, you know a great living environment, um, which um, you know we all um, you know consider cities like Paris and Berlin and Rome. And they're all six stories. They're all six stories as being livable cities. Um, but when we can, when that sort of idea is uh, proposed for Melbourne, um, it seems to be um, not accepted in the same way. So consequently, I think um, there's been a lot of pressure to build high-rise in the CBD or on the edges of the CBD without considering... Um, densifying in places where services and um, infrastructure already exist. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's some areas in in, a, in the inner north, for instance, uh, Carlton, Brunswick, that seem to be 
getting it right and then I look at other areas that I think what's the point yes yeah they're just isolated towers on their own no facilities no transport connections mm. how do things like that happen is it just greedy developers or is it just people think an area is going to change um often it often it is about seeing a potential in an area um that doesn't happen uh sometimes it doesn't happen um that all depends too on how you know, what sort of infrastructure has been promised to that area and then doesn't materialise. Um, uh, in a lot of the new developments, that's certainly been the case, that the roads have gone in after the developments have mm. taken place, um, and that's very problematic. Uh, but um, the idea, and I think that densification, well, we know that densification across Melbourne hasn't been... Um, even. Even. So there are a number of councils that have basically locked out the idea and that's forced um, other areas to densify much more quickly than they probably needed to. And, There's you know, no potentially imbalance. there is an imbalance because a lot of the councils that have um, locked out the densification yeah. are where the um, transport jobs, etc. are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it kind of um, is really in... Um, enforcing an inequality that uh, really is not what we want if we want to continue living in a city there like a, Melbourne. There was a very interesting film I watched last night on St Louis. I don't know if you've seen it. There was a development mm. in uh, St Louis that was basically a good idea in the late 40s. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, now, it's a very unusual name to remember, yeah. but it was basically high-rise living yeah. and clearing out all the yeah. sw slums and all the high-rise went mm. in and uh, was basically for uh, poorer people. Yeah. It was quite unusual because mm. because they were supporting uh, single families mm. who didn't have the income. Uh, husbands weren't allowed, partners were not allowed to stay if they were actually working. So it was kind of a really interesting thing and it, they weren't maintained and yeah. they eventually were pulled down in the early 70s mm. because they had become squalor yes and so it gave a really bad and then the change because everyone went to the suburbs mm. and that inner city part is now just a, a shrine to a, it's a mess yeah uh, and that often happens with good ideas that perhaps went wrong yeah what are the other issues wendy do you think that are facing is it transport? Do you think we'll have less reliance on the car or you think? Well, I think that there, there needs to be an acknowledgement that the, um, the age of the car is on its way out um, uh, in order to invest in um, public, other transport. Mo public transport and other modes. Um, I think that uh, you, I think that certainly I see it, you know, amongst my children and their friends that uh, car ownership is right down. Great. You know, they're... They have bikes. They have bikes. Um, they use public transport. They walk. Um, they're not interested in, you know, that idea of having a car to themselves. So um, I think that we have to um, think about the multimodal transport options mm -hmm. um, and that um, the other big one is that for Melbourne is um, an increase in bus the opportunity for bus routes, uh, because often buses can work very effectively as connectors between other modes of transport. Trouble is, they have to get the traffic off the road to a point where it's very easy to use the bus. I mean, if you go yeah. down Punt Road on the bus, peak time, yeah. an hour trip. 
from yeah. one side of town to the other. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're talking about widening uh, Punt Road to make it easier for traffic, but that's just going to fill the place up with more traffic. That's right. More cars. That's right. Um, and even I think their modelling shows that that's, that's what would occur um, with very little impact on the mm. um, time it would take you to, to travel. So are you positive about what's going to happen in the future or do you think it's going to be one step forward, two steps backwards? And, you know, because Australians are a bit slow when it comes to giving up things like the car. Um, I think that I think they're... I am positive. I think that, um, you know, change does need to occur. Uh, and I think people are coming to terms with the fact that change does need to occur. Um, you know, when you think back about, um, you know, rubbish 20 years ago before people started recycling, you know, we've got a whole new way of dealing with rubbish mm. these days. Um, and that, you know, that just takes – it takes a concerted effort on a number of levels kind of simultaneously for those sort of changes to, to and, happen. And people are living in smaller homes in footprints – and they are, you know, the little terrace that used to be occupied by a huge family of, you know, lots of kids and you shared rooms. It's now, uh, then it went into a professional mode where there was a professional couple with maybe one child. And now people are looking for smaller terraces to bring up a family. They are, And yes. using the amenities as their backyard. That's right. But that also brings up the importance of really good quality public space, Um is absolutely imperative if people are going to live in smaller spaces. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, great parks, great streets, um, all sorts of things like that, That um, you know, and great connections, physical connections between places. Do you still miss the dance world? I mean, you're active, you're active in so many different areas, but do you, do you kind of think, oh, I should have, you know, what would have happened if I would have continued in New York? Um, no, I don't. I don't. I feel like... Um, you know, I know I can always go and see a wonderful piece of dance if I want to. Mm-hmm. There are some great choreographers in Australia. Yeah. Um, but I don't miss performing myself. Um, I'm very happy being challenged in this new direction. So, no, I'm happy where oh, I've good. gone. Yeah. Look, uh, Wendy, I just wish there were more planners like you and maybe I would have pursued a planning <laughs> career if you lectured me many years ago thinking, well, planning could be so much more. I think I, I saw planning just as a very statutory thing. Yes, I think um, planning has moved on a lot. So, uh, you know, understanding planning as a land use issue is now um, much broader than that. So understanding the connections between land use and transport, housing, um, employment opportunities, the relationships between all of them. I think that's that's taken planning into quite a different realm. Um, and, you know, planners also now come with very different sorts of backgrounds. Mm. Uh, that's I was, refreshing. <laughs> I, I was the only one <laughs> with a dance background, <laughs> but there were others who had music degrees. There yeah. were um, people with finance, yeah. economic yeah. backgrounds, politics, um, architects, a lot of architects are doing planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a real interest in urbanism, um, you know, in its broadest sense. So when you went for your interview, they didn't, they didn't raise their eyebrows when you were a dancer, choreographer at all. They didn't seem to. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Wendy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure interviewing you and, um, and I hope our city's 
go forward in a way that you envisage um, because really it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Stephen. Thanks so much. You've been with spe- hearing Wendy Lassica, um, uh, planner, and uh, I'm Stephen Crafty, talking design from RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.